welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Today's show is Frankenstein's Children, Science, Politics, and Fiction, after Mary Shelley. All of our music today comes from the album Life Cycle, featuring solo cello performances by Dave Holland, released in 1982. Holland is better known for his work as a jazz bassist and composer. This is Inception, the first of five compositions making up the life cycle. Returning to Interchange today is Eileen Hunt Body, professor of political science at the University of Notre Dame author of Mary Shelley and the Rights of the Child, and the new book, Artificial Life After Frankenstein, both published by the University of Pennsylvania Press. In our previous conversation from last April, as the pandemic began to deceptively settle into our routines, we focused on Mary Shelley's post-apocalypse novel, The Last Man, a book which explored loss in its most extreme form in order to find a more humane way to live and love and create art. Today, we turn once again to Frankenstein, or the modern Prometheus, that first and perhaps greatest fiction, born out of the tumult and generative anarchy of the French Revolution, the rights of man, and the vindication of the rights of woman, and of vegetarianism, to explore the human power to create artificial life, and the responsibility that must follow that creation. What are the obligations of humanity to the artificial creatures we make? And what are the corresponding rights of those creatures, whether they are learning machines or genetically modified organisms? In Artificial Life After Frankenstein, Eileen Hunt Bodding puts Shelley and several classics of modern political science fiction into dialogue with contemporary political science and philosophy in order to challenge some of the apocalyptic fears at the fore of the 21st century political thought on AI and genetic engineering. Focusing on the prevailing myths that artificial forms of life will end the world, destroy nature, and extinguish love, Bodding shows how Shelley modeled ways to break down and transform the meanings of apocalypse, nature, and love in the face of widespread and deep-seated fear about the power of technology and artifice to undermine the possibility of humanity, community, and life itself. We'll begin with the mad political scientist who created Mary Shelley, her biological parents, Mary Wollstonecraft and William Godwin but also explore her intellectual inheritance from philosophers Jean-Jacques Rousseau and John Locke, and her brothers in the creation of New Gods and Monsters, Percy Shelley, Lord Byron, and John Polidori. And from there, we'll explore the rights we have to love, companionship, and a life free from coercion, enforced servitude, and neglect. And now... Frankenstein's Children, with Eileen Hunt Body, on Interchange, on WFHB. Mary Shelley was deeply influenced by the political thought of the French Revolutionary Era, and it was not simply her parents' works, Mary Wollstonecraft and William Godwin's works from that tumultuous time that influenced her. It was also the works of Jean-Jacques Rousseau and Thomas Paine, uh, Edmund Burke, uh, all the great uh, writers of the time period who were engaging this defining question of what are 
rights. What are the rights of man that have been enshrined in the new French constitution of 1789? And should those rights of man be extended to cover other beings such as women? Should there be the rights of women enshrined in law as well? Should other rights be enshrined? Uh, after her mother, Mary Wollstonecraft, published her A Vindication of the Rights of Women in 1792, uh, very soon thereafter, a Cambridge Platonist philosopher, Thomas Taylor, published a satirical critique of that work on women's rights, arguing that, in fact, if women were to be granted rights, that would mean that we should grant rights to brutes or non-human animals. Almost immediately uh, in the wake of her mother's writing on human rights, uh, there was the rise of wild speculation about how rights ought to apply to the full gamut of creatures um, and life forms uh, on the planet. And so uh, you, you see how the French Revolution, um, with all of its uh, tumult and um, anarchy, in some ways sparked a, a revolution in ideas that was um, both futuristic and also science fictional in a way. Uh, in my book, Artificial Life After Frankenstein, I talk about the rise of modern political science fiction after the French Revolution, and especially after Mary Shelley's publication of Frankenstein in 1818. Uh, and I think Mary Shelley, as a, um, as a mother of um, the genre of modern political science fiction, in many ways took her inspiration from both the, the prose and the fiction of the French Revolutionary era, um, which was wildly futuristic and speculative. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and dare to imagine things like, do women have rights? Do animals have rights? You know, should slavery be abolished? These are the kinds of questions that the radicals of the time were engaging in. Percy Shelley, first her illicit lover and then her husband, wrote a vindication of um, natural diet in uh, 1813, just a year before he eloped with Godwin's teenage daughter. In his vindication of natural diet, Percy argued that we ought to try to be vegetarians. He makes a very capacious argument for a, a general ethical obligation of humanity to pay homage to the kind of sacredness of life itself by refraining from violence towards life forms um, beyond ourselves. And so he vindicates a vegetarian diet as part of this kind of new kind of ethical worldview he's espousing, which was inspired by another great Enlightenment philosopher, Spinoza. There's a lot going on. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. That's for sure. And it's, uh, 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 as you say, it's kind of the disruption of uh, the French Revolution that kind of sets the ferment uh, uh, roiling, I suppose. And uh, one of the things that struck me in thinking of that uh, satirical response uh, to, to Wollstonecraft's vindication, you know, one in which someone would say, well, should we give brutes rights too? You know, obviously this is a kind of a common refrain for, for anyone denying anyone's rights, right? As they extend out things they think are ridiculous that you have to give rights to. Should we give rights to a toaster? And, you know, these are things that we'll, we'll contend with. But the idea isn't far-fetched in the sense that, was it Descartes that calls animals basically machines, right? They're soulless uh, machines in Descartes' philosophy. So we're coming up against that too, aren't we? In the French tradition throughout the early modern period and then into the French Revolutionary era, you see a fascination with automata, mm. you know, uh, whether, whether you're thinking about um, uh, kind of robots or you're thinking about um, musical watches. Um, there was a tradition, especially 
in Francophone cultures of constructing um, these complex uh, automata, um, which raised all sorts of interesting philosophical questions, especially in light of, of Descartes' thesis, you know, that, they, that the animal is essentially a machine. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Frankenstein's Children with author Eileen Hunt-Bodding, whose new book, Artificial Life After Frankenstein, asks what are the obligations of humanity to the artificial creatures we make, and what are the corresponding rights of those creatures, whether they are learning machines or genetically modified organisms, and does it matter how they came into being? I think that Mary Shelley, in writing Frankenstein between um, 1816 and uh, 1817, uh, was engaged with the idea of the automata to some degree. There's there's some evidence that uh, she may have been aware of a 1790 novella published in France, um, so right in the thick of the revolution. And this novella by Nogeret um, imagined a, uh, a man named Frankenstein who um, makes uh, a flute-playing automaton um, to help him woo his wife. And uh, my colleague here at Notre Dame, Julia Douthwaite, uh, wrote an important book a few years ago, uh, arguing that this is a likely source for, for Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Uh, and uh, more recently, other scholars have discovered that uh, almost as soon as the work Frankenstein was translated into French in 1821 by Jules Saladin and published in Paris, um, there was a theatrical production of Frankenstein uh, in Paris. And, uh, and and very recently, it's been discovered that the, the creature was advertised as an automaton mm. uh, in uh, the um, kind of arts and culture, arts and culture journals in Paris at the time. Wow. Uh, the, kind, the kinds of papers you'd read if you were following what was going on in the theater. The play was advertised as about an automaton. So we see as early as 1821, the creature being identified as an automaton or in our modern parlance, we might say a robot. So she writes a book called Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus. Um, But this is similar to uh, her parents' books, right? So in the sense of how they're named, not necessarily what they're about, since I haven't read them and don't know. So there's there's like um, a lineage of this book as well. For sure. Frankenstein is a novel built out of books. You know, it's kind of the ultimate intertextual, almost proto-postmodern novel uh, in the ways that it it explicitly appropriates philosophical arguments drawn from uh, Rousseau's Emile and Godwin's Caleb Williams and Wollstonecraft's uh, Mariah or The Wrongs of Woman. Um, It's also a novel that harkens back to ancient Greece uh, by um, including the term the modern Prometheus in the subtitle. Uh, she's explicitly writing a modern myth. Uh, she's reworking the story of Prometheus. And, and and how does that work? What does it mean that Frankenstein is the modern Prometheus? Well, uh, interestingly, on the night they held their ghost story competition in June of 1816, at the Villa Diodati in Geneva, um, John Polidori's story was the modern Oedipus. Mm. And he went, he went on to publish that novel uh, in 1819, as well as a novella called The Vampire. And so they were obviously, as a group, very interested in this question. Um, can you write a modern myth? Can you take the legends and tales of antiquity and rework them into something that speaks to people today? Or or is the age of gods and monsters over? And I think, I think what they were saying is that, no, <laughs> the age of gods and monsters has only begun. <laughs> and he here are our here are our monsters, right? And so Polidori gives us the vampire. I mean, 
that and his story inspires Bram Stoker's Dracula. So that in itself is an amazing literary achievement. Um, that 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 I think is is. Um, is, is not emphasized enough. But Mary Shelley's achievement is arguably even more important. Uh, and it was to rework the story of Prometheus. Um, and and to, to show that, interestingly, the monster isn't who you think he is. Um, you might go into this novel if you heard something about it. If you heard about how a, a scientist makes a living creature eight feet tall um, out of the bodies of um, human and other animal corpses, you might think that creature is the monster. Uh, and in fact, he's often called a monster in the novel by his own maker. But what I think Mary Shelley very cleverly does with her reworking of the Prometheus myth is to say that Victor Frankenstein, in some ways, is the real monster. Um, he's the one who has the hubris, you know, of both stealing fire. And in, in, in Victor Frankenstein's case, I think that's using electricity and uh, other technologies and scientific tools at his disposal to bring life into the world without any thought as to his responsibility for caring for that life. He abandons the creature almost as soon as the creature comes to life. But he also is like Prometheus in the sense that in one version of the myth of Prometheus, Prometheus um, makes life out of makes human beings out of clay. Um, and that can also be seen as an act of hubris. Um, Prometheus in the ancient Greek legends was not of the stature of Zeus. Uh, and, and so for him to assume the power of creation, to create a, a species that would be indebted to him was to, in some sense, usurp, you know, the, the kind of godly power of Zeus. There's something monstrous about that act of rebellion, uh, um, whatever the good intentions were. One of the things about Prometheus that I find interesting, I don't know that the Greeks had some understanding of, you know, your liver being a thing that could grow back, right? But, you know, he's, you know, chained to a rock and an eagle eats his liver every night and it grows back or every day and it grows back to be eaten again. It's part of his punishment, but it's regeneration, mm. which is part of that as well, right? The idea of this this thing that you regenerate uh, that is that is damaged and, and harmed, but you can put life back into it. So that's in there also. That may be a good tie-in to uh, our later discussion of how Frankenstein relates to contemporary uh, techniques of genetic engineering. It's time for a break. This is Discovery. The second composition off of Dave Holland's five-song Life Cycle. More with Eileen Hunt-Bodding on Artificial Life After Frankenstein when Interchange returns. Thank you. 
Welcome back to Interchange. Our show is Frankenstein's Children, Science, Politics, and Fiction after Mary Shelley with Eileen Hunt Bodding, author and professor of political science at the University of Notre Dame. In this segment, we explore the idea of self, how humans come to understand the very concept of being and belonging in the world as conveyed to Victor Frankenstein and readers by his creation. One of the things that I, I, I don't want to leave behind is just this idea of what humans are, you know, how they think, how they come to be, how they have memories, or, you know, what makes us what, what we are, right? And these books that we already mentioned, uh, particularly uh, Rousseau's on Emile, but these are, these are also books of education, you know, how, how we bring each other up, how we, how we make people good, bad, bad uh, etc. You know, and then the idea of, of minds as blank slates is here as well. Yes, for sure. Uh, Mary Shelley was... Uh, a deep reader of John Locke. Um, she had read his epistemological and educational and political works. Uh, she was familiar with his idea that the mind was a blank slate. But very soon, I mean, even in the womb, we're, we're taking in the sensory impressions of the world around us, and that, that's shaping who we are, what we, what we feel, um, what we think, the ideas we have, um, and then how we use those ideas in language and in our social relationships. Mm-hmm. I think Mary Shelley, um, like her father, bought into this empirical epistemology of Locke um, and uh, used it in her novel, uh, Frankenstein, to explore the the psychosocial development of the creature. There's a way in which uh, the creature, when he is animated and almost immediately abandoned by his father, Victor Frankenstein, um, he kind of stumbles into the world. He's, he's like a walking blank slate and uh, he has no direction. He has, he has, he has no, he doesn't even know what happened to him. He doesn't know how he was made. I mean, in many ways he, he is exactly like a, like an infant. I mean, an in, infant who is brought into the world has no awareness of how they got there, you know? Um, so it goes for the creature. Uh, Mary Shelley was a, was a young mother at the time she wrote Frankenstein. She had had one baby in 1815 who, who died very soon after she was born because she was born premature. And then she had uh, a boy, um, William, who was uh, an infant while she was in Geneva in June of 1816 um, when she came up with the idea for Frankenstein. So she was aware of child development uh, and she was aware of the, the, the kind of extreme dependency of children on parents for guidance in how they process all of the stimuli, stimuli um, going on around them. And I think she wanted to dramatize in the predicament of the creature, what would happen if you lacked any and all guidance or support in your earliest days of life? What kind of impact would that have on you if you were literally a walking blank slate and you were just kind of bumping into stimuli without anyone there to protect you or to help you interpret what was happening to you? So obviously we walked into the space where we're dealing with uh, the idea of creating something and abandoning it. The idea of that, that creation having no guidance, uh, having to try to understand what it means to be anything in the world. What is a being? What, you know, what am I supposed to be? I've got no sense of even belonging to what, what is called humanity because I'm, I mean, the creature is obviously quite different. I don't know how, um, prevalent mirrors were or where you would see reflections of yourself, I suppose. But, you know, even having the idea of what a self is, 
I mean, uh, Mary Shelley gives us an interesting moment in the novel. Uh, in the heart of the novel is the creature's account of his um, yeah. of his life. Right. Uh, you know, he confronts Victor Frankenstein on the Mer de Glace, uh, the mountains outside of Geneva, and they talk for the first time. Uh, you know, at least two years have passed since since he was created. Um, and since then, the creature has gone on a vengeful quest, and he has murdered Victor Frankenstein's little brother, William. And he now has the attention of his creator. And uh, he tells his creator, I want to tell you my perspective. I want you to hear my story. And and that's the literal heart of the novel. Uh, you know, it's uh, the, the novel has a three-tiered structure where you have at the outside, the story of Captain Walton, who is this Arctic explorer who meets Victor Frankenstein near the North Pole. Uh, and then the second layer, we have Victor Frankenstein's story of how he ended up at the North Pole. Uh, and then in, in the heart of the story, we have the creature's account, um, as recounted by Victor to Walton, of his experience of life um, after animation. Hmm. And uh, when they're on the Meredith Glass, the creature recounts how he, he wandered through the woods by himself for quite some time. Um, and eventually um, finds a hovel to live in, um, learns to imitate other people, and uh, learns language through imitation. But there's a very poignant moment where the creature looks into water and he sees his own reflection. And he's horrified, you know, and he, he starts to understand why people are running away from him or trying to hurt him. And so he uh, sees his own reflection and he feels that he is a monster, but in some sense, He's interjecting society's perception of him into his own self-image. And so this is where I think Mary Shelley is a good psychologist. Uh, and she's theorizing how um, conceptions of monstrosity are, are not somehow born in us, but are interjected through our experience of the social world around us. And so because the creature has already been subject to abuse and neglect, in some sense he has almost no choice by the time he sees his reflection, but to see his reflection as a visage of monstrosity. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Frankenstein's Children with author Eileen Hunt-Bodding, whose new book, Artificial Life After Frankenstein, asks what are the obligations of humanity to the artificial creatures we make, and what are the corresponding rights of those creatures, whether they are learning machines or genetically modified organisms, and does it matter how they came into being? things that happens to, to Frankenstein or, or excuse me to the creature uh, is you know he has to raise himself as you say and he does it with books which is another interesting idea here right uh, can you can you be molded by books you know can books make you who you are it's another aspect of this uh, to consider and then there's just the the sort of the simple way in which you look for relation in your life, uh, the necessity of that as a human, uh, but he doesn't have relations, right? And that's one of the key issues of your book too, is how, how those are responsibilities also, the responsibility to be a companion. More than even as a parent, Victor himself needs to be that first companion. And this is how often things go wrong in life, you know, where we don't have human community. So another, another huge important part of, of this book is, is that being alone, you know, has, has sort of bereft him of, of humanity. Yes. I mean, and this theme actually emerges on the very first page of Frankenstein. Uh, you know, uh, 
uh, the story of Captain Walton, the Arctic explorer who discovers Victor Frankenstein uh, floating on an ice raft, you know, uh, near his boat as they attempt to discover the North Pole. Uh, you know, he points out in his letter home to his sister in London that he has no friend. So in some ways, it's the existential predicament of everyone in this novel. You know, um, every narrator has this existential problem of lacking a friend uh, that can uh, understand them and, and love them. And this is the kind of guiding philosophical problem, the guiding ethical problem of the whole novel. Um, all the characters bear it in some way. Uh, but especially, I think, Captain Walton, Victor, Frankenstein, and the creature. But find different answers to the question. And I think it's interesting that in the end of the novel, um, Captain Walton decides just to go home to London. You know, he gives up his quest to find the North Pole. I think that symbolizes uh, in many ways um, Mary Shelley's uh, desire for people to find hope uh, in the society itself and perhaps also the intimate relationships of family life. And uh, whereas Victor and the creature both fail in their quest to find um, a true companion, except in, in a kind of the dark sense that they, they find one another. Um, you know, they, they, they end up in the Arctic together and uh, in some sense are both forced to confront the way that their very being is intertwined. Let's think a little bit uh, about your book itself. Obviously, we've talked about Frankenstein and we've touched on themes that are in your book, obviously. But uh, the book is Artificial Life After Frankenstein. And it's one of the things in which you, you posit that, that life generally is artificial, right? Uh, that that it's kind of one of those, maybe a false definition to try to find natural life versus artificial life. You know, why is this important? What does is, what is the artificial part do for you? One thing that teaching Frankenstein does for a reader, uh, and I've been teaching Frankenstein for a very long time now, is make you appreciate uh, the difficulty of defining the natural. I think a lot of times in our everyday language, we, we tend to use the term natural, I think, too loosely. Um, we, we, we tend to um, imply that our lives are more natural than they actually are, um, or that there's some way in which you know, some things are natural and other things are not. And what I think I wanted to accomplish through this book, this rereading of Frankenstein and Mary Shelley's other great work of uh, political science fiction, The Last Man from 1826, is to show that Mary Shelley was deeply engaged in exploding this opposition between nature um, and the unnatural. Uh, and um, and that the the making of the creature, um, the making of a of a of an artificial life form through the interventions of human uh, technology and science, is such a powerful metaphor for thinking about the ways in which all dimensions of human life are in fact artificially shaped through our culture. Um, through our technology, through science, through our art. And so in many ways, I think Mary Shelley was anticipating uh, strands of philosophy that have really only taken root since the late 20th century. Um, much of postmodernism and post-structuralism basically predicates that almost everything in our experience of the world is understood through the lens of um, language, technology, culture. In other words, everything at root that 
we experience as human beings is socially constructed and including our environment, you know, and, and in the age of the Anthropocene, where we are um, in the middle of um, a climate crisis uh, and now in the middle of a, of a man-made or man-exacerbated pandemic, it's certainly a powerful thesis to consider the ways that even seemingly purely natural events or so-called acts of God, um, like a like a plague or a pandemic, can be ultimately understood as exacerbated or spread by human behavior, human interventions with um, language, culture, art, technology, science. It's time for another break. This is Longing, the third song off of Dave Holland's Life Cycle. More on Frankenstein's children with Eileen Hunt Bodding when Interchange returns on WFHB. back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. In this segment of Frankenstein's Children, we explore our current technologies as they intervene into life and life creation, as well as the attendant fear of what future these interventions might give birth to. Eileen Huntbotting critiques the bioconservative view through the lens of recent science fictions, like the 1997 film Gattaca. It is, as you say already, um, too easy to kind of try to distinguish things as good or bad, even uh, by calling them, you know, right and uh, or natural and unnatural, uh, and giving weight to the natural, right? To say this is this is as uh, nature intended. You know, you go further in in trying to explore some of these questions uh, because we're in a, a, a state now, in an age now, I suppose, where where we really are moving into some interesting difficulties in terms of trying to understand uh, interventions into, uh, I guess, life. I don't know, you know, obviously, as as you, as you point out, we've had interventions into life before, um, but certain technologies uh, occasionally give one a little bit of the willies. It's, it's, an, it's a gut response for most of us to say, uh, I worry about science uh, making a world that I don't understand. 
right? Mm -hmm. Making a world that I can't be a part of or that doesn't look like me. I argue that throughout contemporary political science. Um, and here I look at uh, Francis Fukuyama's work, uh, Jurgen Habermas's work, Michael Sandel's work um, in particular, and also in contemporary political philosophy. And there I look at Nick Bostrom. You see this fear of the end of the world. You see this fear of the, the death of nature. You see this fear of the end of love itself um, or the end of of, of traditional family forms resurfacing over and over again. And so even someone like Habermas, who's, who's not typically understood as being conservative in any way, even, even Habermas veers towards the bioconservative. He, he's very leery of contemporary practices of genetic engineering, and he fears that it may, it may actually um, hurt our, the possibility of respecting human life um, and also the possibility of realizing human rights. Uh, and so he wrote a book called The Future of Human Nature, published in 2003 in English, and that, that made a, a case against most forms of, of at least heritable genetic engineering. And, uh, and so in many ways, even though he criticized the work of um, Francis Fukuyama as being a bit too um, extreme and also rooted in science fiction, such as the work of um, Huxley and Orwell, uh, Habermas in many ways echoed um, the bioconservative arguments of Francis Fukuyama in his book, Our Posthuman Future, published in 2002. And that, that work as well argued against the vast majority of forms of, of genetic engineering um, simply on the grounds that it, it may actually destroy humanity itself, you know, our understanding of our own nature. And this kind of very extreme hyperbolic style of argument um, resurfaced in the work of um, Michael Sandel, um, who is typically a, quite a moderate political theorist. But in his book, The Case Against Perfection, Ethics in the Age of Genetic Engineering, published in 2007, Sandel too joins this chorus, this growing chorus in contemporary political science, where the leading uh, guys in the field are, 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 are kind of exhibiting anxiety over the possibility that genetic engineering could mean the end of humanity itself. And so this style of apocalyptic thinking became quite prevalent at the turn of the uh, 21st century. And, uh, and then we saw a few years later, um, this same style of apocalyptic thinking emerge in the work of Nick Bostrom, who published a book on called Superintelligence uh, in 2014, which was a New York Times bestseller and uh, drew a lot of attention to the, the specter of the singularity, the mm -hmm. idea that AI could arise that is um, as smart as or smarter than us in the near future. And it, it might actually work to destroy us the way that Frankenstein's creature works to destroy his maker. And so we see later in this century the emergence of a of a style of apocalyptic thought about AI that reflects this earlier pessimism about genetic engineering and how it might rob us of our very humanity or everything that makes human life worthwhile. Um, so in my book, I, I try to take on these leading philosophers of AI and genetic engineering and show the ways that their arguments are deep down motivated by fear of technology, a technophobia in which technology emerges as a kind of modern boogeyman, right? Uh, you know, that we're, we, we have to kind of react against uh, fearfully. Um, and the big question I think Mary Shelley begs us to ask is, do we have to? Um, and so in Frankenstein, she, she gives us this kind of 
um, allegory by which we are asked to question the ways that um, science and technology might come back to harm us or, or hurt us. But she also gives us a modern myth that begs us to ask, what does it feel like to be that creature of technology? And if we read the creature as maybe a, another kind of modern Prometheus, right? You know, the, the kind of um, the son of the modern Prometheus. And if we really take the creature story to heart, I think we have to read Frankenstein as not simply a morality tale against science or against technology. We have to read Frankenstein as a kind of ethical story that asks us to reconceive our relationship to the products of our technological interventions in the environment, which would include making any and all life forms. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Frankenstein's Children with author Eileen Hunt-Bodding, whose new book, Artificial Life After Frankenstein, asks what are the obligations of humanity to the artificial creatures we make and what are the corresponding rights of those creatures, whether they are learning machines or genetically modified organisms, and does it matter how they came into being? Generally, when I think about technologies, I tend to think about the billions of individuals uh, that have no say in technological advance. And it's one of those things that I struggle with a little bit because like, technological advance happens. That's what's going on all the time. And it's got an engine of its own in many ways, whether it's um, the ambition of the scientist like Victor Frankenstein or the ambition of the capitalist to you know, make money off of something or, or just the ambition of someone like Walton in this book, right, is to discover new things. So the ambitions of an Elon Musk or something like that, right? It's not just about making money. It's about finding out something new, going somewhere new, being somewhere else. Um, so these are, these are difficult things when you sort of think about them wrapped up in that perspective to me, because I think the novel does come down on the side of turning around. I, I guess I struggle with trying to make the the parallels between you know modern realities, which do seem to be verging into spaces that are very difficult to understand, versus a fiction. I guess. Well, one thing that I tried to do in the book is um, not only discuss contemporary uh, philosophical reflections on genetic engineering and the making of artificial intelligence, but to look at political science fictions mm -hmm. uh, that engage these questions in a way that maybe is more understandable than philosophy. And so on genetic engineering, I spent a lot of time thinking about the 1997 film Gattaca, and I compared that story of a uh, near-future society in which virtually everyone is genetically engineered, um, and those who are genetically engineered are in the upper echelons of society. And those that are not genetically engineered are at the bottom rungs of society. They're the janitors for the genetically engineered. And in that film represents the story of a boy from the lower echelons of society passing as a genetically engineered man and in order to realize his dream of becoming an astronaut. One of the most poignant scenes is one in which he competes with his brother, who, who has been genetically engineered. And one of the ways in which I connect the film to the present day is in discussing the birth of um, two girls in China in late 
2018, known as Nana and Lulu, who were genetically engineered in a heritable way via CRISPR-Cas9, a new biotechnology that is used to modify permanently or heritably the human genome. CRISPR-Cas9 is known more colloquially as a kind of a gene editing or um, gene surgery technique that allows scientists to make very precise interventions in the genome, or so they think. They're not sure what the long-term ramifications might be, or if there might be side effects, or if their editing um, may um, affect other parts of the genome unbeknownst to them. But a scientist, Dr. Jean-Quay He, um, went ahead and not only manipulated embryos in the Petri dish, but then went to implant them in a woman's womb and brought that pregnancy to term. And the children were born in the fall of 2018. And it was revealed at a major genetic engineering conference in China in late November, early December 2018, that the children were, were, were with us. And so this was a, a historic moment uh, because uh, the whole scientific community was shocked. They didn't expect this technology to be used for um, human reproduction so soon. But because this rogue scientist, a kind of Victor Frankenstein, as it were, went ahead and did it against the the, the ethical recommendations of the, the world scientific community, meant that all of a sudden we had to deal with it as a society. What I found interesting is that the two babies were actually altered slightly differently. The children may have different experiences of their genetic features down the line. We don't know what this alteration will mean for each girl individually. And just like the film Gattaca, it's possible it may affect their family dynamics. It may affect their sibling dynamics. Um, And in the film Gattaca, the two boys um, are rivals. Um, They compete even to the death. The film raises this question, what if our interventions, our our kind of ill-thought-out interventions in the human genome might um, hurt our ability to relate to one another in a loving and peaceful way? Science fiction like Gattaca allows us to nuance some of the the news of artificial life that we see in the papers. Um, it helps us to maybe humanize the stories and, and also try to imagine what it would be like to be a genetically engineered child. Um, and I think that's what um, good science fiction does, born of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. It, it, it leads us to imagine what would it be like to be that creature? Um, do you think that if you were such a creature, you would have basic rights to love and belonging community just like anybody else? And I think Mary Shelley's story leads us down that philosophical path to sympathize with all creatures, regardless of how they are made or from what they are made, um, and to try to imagine a world in which they would feel as supported um, within the community as anyone else. Again, as you've just demonstrated, science and scientists uh, are going to do the things that they're going to do. It doesn't seem to me that even if we put particular prohibitions or regulations on things, uh, that those things actually hinder what people want to do that have the capacity to do it. It's time for our final break. This is Search, the fourth composition off of Dave Holland's Life Cycle. Stay with us for more on artificial life after Frankenstein when Interchange returns. 
Welcome back to Interchange in our final segment of Frankenstein's Children with University of Notre Dame political science professor Eileen Hunt Bodding. We'll take a close look at Jeanette Winterson's recent novel, Frankistein, A Love Story, an exploration of the rights and obligations we have toward artificial life after Frankenstein in an age of artificial intelligence and sex bots. We have to have ways in which we think about beings that are sentient as deserving of rights. This is a, an important thing to talk about and work through and have down, I suppose, to write down, to have in documents like the Universal Declaration of, of Human Rights. But I'm not sure what the realities of human history have shown us about how we respect rights. Mm-hmm. So I struggle not with the idea of it, because I think Frankenstein is a great way to look at it, um, in particular, the, the idea of the companion, mm-hmm. which forces us to understand rights of needing companionship as well as of being a companion. There's certainly rights literature on the idea of a right to be a companion, not to get companionship or you know, the right to be loved, but the right to love is also necessary for people. You point out that in, in Frankenstein in particular that the creature um, wants a companion. First, Victor Frankenstein, you know, dad, to be his companion. But if he can't have dad, he wants a companion. Give me a companion. Someone who is really as ugly as I am. <laughs> right? I mean, yes, it, yeah. True. He's going to say that. Yes, it's uh, a good point. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. And in, in there, thereby complicates in a very poetic way what it means to desire love what it means to be an object of love by asking for a creature who is as ugly as he is. Uh, I think the creature is in some ways, this kind of wonderful philosopher of love, um, maybe the kind of anti-platonic philosopher of love, um, you know, so instead of um, love being oriented towards beauty, uh, love becomes oriented towards ugliness. Yeah. But, but I think the creature's point is that uh, it doesn't matter what you look like. Um, it does not matter what your facial color is, you know, uh, you know, this is where the novel can be read as a kind of anti-racist mm-hmm. 
narrative. It does not matter um, what kinds of disability society projects upon you. You have a basic right to be who you are. Uh, in in my book, in uh, the second part where I treat contemporary debates on genetic engineering through the lens of science fictions, I, I spend a lot of time thinking about the right of a genetically engineered child simply to be that's why the creature in the novel asks for the right to live in the interchange of those sympathies necessary for my being. One of the most poetic lines in the novel, the creature reconceives what it means to ask for a right to love or to share love with another. Uh, and his use of the term interchange of sympathy is really quite interesting on multiple levels because it suggests a reciprocity. It suggests an equality as well. And uh, it also suggests a kind of fundamental dependency or interdependency between um, at least two beings, uh, which um, will make his life worth living. Uh, not simply bring him to life, he's animated, but what he's not given by Victor Frankenstein is a reason to live. I'm going to push a little bit here simply because um, I think the essential fact of asking for a companion as ugly as he is does, as you say, complicate the situation because what it says is, I recognize no one loves me because of this, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I recognize you, dad, don't love me because of this. You know, that begs the question, if the creature had been comely, you know, what would have happened? Right? <laughs> um, but the the situation is one in which, uh, if you think about it, if Frankenstein had actually built him a companion, created a companion that was not as ugly as he was, this companion might have been loved by other beings and not loved him, the creature, mm -hmm. right? So he's asking for someone who won't love others instead of me. You know, that's that's an essential aspect. You know, I need people or things or whatever you're calling me to be like me. Mm. That's an interesting distinction, I think. But it's based on his response to the more his own experience with the visual response to him, right? So his best bet was the blind guy. Yeah, it's true. It's true. It's only in relationship to the um, old blind man, DeLacy, that the creature experiences that interchange of sympathy. Right. Um, gets a glimmer of that. Well, I want to clarify one thing. Sure. I, I, I do think the creature is in some ways this wonderful kind of anti-platonic philosopher of love, you know, uh, and a kind of dark gothic philosopher of love. On the other hand, he gets some things wrong. So let's talk about what the creature gets wrong. Because in some ways, he's just a terrible philosopher of love because he's never been loved. He's never known what it is to, to experience love, right? He's only read books. He's read Paradise Lost. <laughs> he identifies with Satan. I mean, he's had all the wrong influences, right? Uh, and um, although reading Paradise Lost makes him uh, very eloquent, but he is misguided most profoundly in the sense that he's entitled to have a creature made for him. And, and my book concludes with a coda called A Vindication of the Rights of Artificial Creatures, um, which is inspired by the works of Mary Wollstonecraft and Percy Shelley on um, rights uh, during the post-revolutionary era. And in this coda, I argue that we, we're all artificial creatures. We all have, we're all entitled to the same rights, um, but no one has a right to ask for someone to be made to serve them. No one has a duty to be made to serve another. That is to be asked to be a slave and slavery is contrary to our humanity. Um, and uh, the most 
fundamental of human rights is to be free from the conditions of domination that we understand as slavery. Now, the creature had a right to to be part of a community. The creature had a right not to be discriminated against. The creature had a right to love and to share love. But the creature did not have a right to have a female creature or any sort of creature expressly made to serve him and his, even his need for love. So at the end of the day, love must be freely and reciprocally exchanged. Even in the parent-infant relationship, which is obviously one in which parent dominates uh, and, the, and the infant is dependent on the parent for survival, I argue that there's a reciprocity of love between the infant and the parent. And it's one that enables that relationship to grow into something more equal over time. And when that reciprocity is absent, you know, say when a parent is not showing an infant adequate love, then the child will often fail to thrive. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Frankenstein's Children with author Eileen Hunt-Bodding, whose new book, Artificial Life After Frankenstein, asks what are the obligations of humanity to the artificial creatures we make, and what are the corresponding rights of those creatures, whether they are learning machines or genetically modified organisms, and does it matter how they came into being? I think it's the problem of science that it upends what you think of as sort of bouncing into another being uh, and and having opportunity or relational opportunity versus creating things that may or may not have sentience or have the ability to love or, or not love or, or be reciprocal. You know, so creating beings is already uh, an ethically challenged position if you're going to think about the intentions of creation. Yeah, in the in the coda to the book, I spend some time talking about uh, sex robots, right. uh, which is a real phenomenon. Uh, they're they're made, they are bought and sold, uh, and disturbingly, some of them are uh, made to look like children. And I, I take on this practice and, and give a robust ethical critique because what I want to say is that yes, I acknowledge the. These robots aren't sentient. They're not conscious yet. (laughs) Uh, They might be in the future. The problem is that if we just treat um, childlike or even merely lifelike robots as mere tools or instruments for our own pleasure and power, aren't we degrading our own humanity um, and our capacity to show humaneness towards all forms of life around us? I think that there's ways in which we need to think more deeply and carefully about some questions that might seem absurd now, such as, you know, is it wrong to um, use a sex robot for one's own satisfaction? Or would it be right to ascribe rights to robots in the future? Some of these questions seem wildly speculative and even crazed. And yet, I think there's a way in which Mary Shelley anticipated all of these questions back in back in 1818 with Frankenstein. And it um, actually shows us just how important it is to consider these questions, right. no matter how futuristic or um, even crazy they seem. And um, and now we're getting to the point where a lot of these technologies are getting real. These things that Mary Shelley imagined back in the 1810s, if they're not already here, they're on their way. And even if we never create robots or androids or AIs that are sentient or conscious in the way that we are, I think we still owe it to ourselves to think about what sustains our own humanity 
And there may be very important limits and lines we want to draw. I, I do agree that we have to think about basic ethical questions. Uh, as you were talking about sex bots, I was like, well, uh, what if you're, what if you beat your sex bot? You know, all these things come up because they can come up. Right? Yes. In fact, one of the novels um, that I use uh, to explore this very question is Frankenstein by Jeanette Winterson. It came out in 2019. It's a, a new take on the novel Frankenstein. And she did a lot of wonderful work on linking uh, the story of Frankenstein to contemporary debates on artificial intelligence and the rise of a superintelligence. She dramatizes in her novel a lot of the debates that I discuss um, in the abstract. And, uh, and one of the issues her novel raises is, you know, what if they started to build sex bots, or she calls them XX bots, that could just be you know, easily bought and sold and then actually just physically abused. And there's one, one um, sex bot manufacturer in the novel, you know, basically says, Oh, a lot of the, a lot of the XXX bots get their, get their heads bashed in, but you know, it's an easy fix, you know? Right. And, and, and I thought that was such a powerful moment because uh, Winterson, you know, as a feminist writer is um, actually reaching deep into the feminist tradition here, actually arguably all the way back to the work of Mary Wollstonecraft who argued um, quite explicitly, against the um, instrumental and abusive um, and exploitative use of women's bodies for purposes of sex and reproduction. And I think that uh, Winterson, in many ways, writes a novel that not only returns to Frankenstein, but also returns Frankenstein to its original philosophical sources um, and, and makes a point that, yes, there's lots that technology can achieve that is um, wonderful for humanity. In the novel, for example, one of the lead characters is uh, a kind of analog for Mary Shelley. Um, in her book, it's Rye Shelley. This character is trans. And so this character owes their experience of their body and their experience of their sexuality in many ways to technological intervention. In some ways, Winterson is saying that we need to be aware of the ways that technology and science bestow many benefits upon humanity and enhance our ability to experience and share love. On the other hand, we always have to be careful and aware of the ways that science and technology and just our culture in general can lead us down the wrong paths, down that Victor Frankensteinian path. And that's what we want to avoid. That's our show. Here's the final song in Dave Holland's five-song Life Cycle off of the 1982 album, also called Life Cycle. This is, naturally, Resolution. Thanks to Eileen Hunt-Botting for joining us again to complete what we started back in April of 2020, an exploration of Mary Shelley's two great political science fictions, something like parent stories to much of the fiction that would follow, about artificial life, scientific hubris, and apocalypse. Frankenstein, or The Modern Prometheus, published in 1818, and The Last Man, published in 1826. We'll have a link to that April show, The Journey Through Sorrow, in today's web post. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Kate Young is executive producer. This is Bloomington, Indiana's community radio station, WFHB. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for The Jazz Menagerie.